According to a recent survey, 58% of students said their mental health has become worse because of the pandemic. Here at Edinburgh, 10% of the student population are in counselling, with 360 appointments a week on offer. And with £8.5 million recently being spent on the new wellbeing centre in Bristow Square, you can't deny that there is a demand for mental health support. Welcome to the first ever episode of Paper Telly Sound, a collaboration between Fresh Air, The Student and EUTV, Edinburgh's three biggest media societies. This week we're going to be talking about student mental health support and whether the University of Edinburgh is doing enough. My name's Peter Johnson and I'm from Fresh Air and today I'm going to be speaking to Keris Maidman from EUTV and Millie Lord from The Student about the investigative work they've both done on this topic. So, Keris, to start with you, um, EUTV have never made a documentary before, um, and you decided the first one, the suitable topic, the first ever EUTV documentary would be on the student mental health crisis. Why now? Well, it's an interesting question. I think, um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a massive fan of like Vice-style YouTube documentaries. Um, those kind of half an hour documentary format where they do a topic that's really relevant to so many people. Um, and when I made my speech about being president for UTV at the AGM, I made it clear that that was one thing that I really wanted to do because like we have the equipment, we have the editing skills. It was something that I thought we could really pull off. Um, and yeah, coming back to Edinburgh in September and witnessing students in first years being enclosed into their accommodation and just the lack of support that we were getting in general, not just from mental health, but what was happening with our degree, whether things were going ahead. I thought there's there must be an opening here. And but the mental health services at Edinburgh have never been, you know, seen as, as favourable by the, the students. You just have to take one look at Edifest and some of the posts that get posted on there to see that there already were issues. So um, as a team, we decided that it'd be really interesting to look into the services at Edinburgh, how they've dealt with mental health in the past and in the pandemic, how they've been dealing with, with students. Yeah, we'll, we'll cover all those themes as this as this podcast progresses and we'll kind of dive into all the different the different aspects and challenges to student mental health at the moment. I think it's perhaps an opportune time to say at this moment we will be diff- dealing with some difficult themes and maybe challenging, challenging some people, talking about suicide, self-harm, things like that. Um, just as a bit of a disclaimer, there will be some sensitive um, issues that we discuss. Um, and with that, over to over to Millie. Um, you started your article uh, that thought, formed your research on this subject with a harrowing story about a student who went to the advice place and had a potentially life-threatening experience. It's, it's perhaps fair to say. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the student I interviewed, um, let's call her Hannah, I interviewed her about her experiences last year. So it was before the COVID crisis happened, but was a clear indicator that the Edinburgh University Mental Health Services were not doing their job. She was someone, so she was a first year, it was coming to the end of her first term. She was someone who'd previously suffered from depression, anxiety and eating disorder. Um, And she was really struggling and feeling suicidal. And she knew that with GPs, there were only 10 minutes appointments and the waiting lists were very long. So she decided to go to the advice place where she told two separate advisors that she was clearly feeling suicidal and that she had actually suicidal intent. Um, And all they could do was give her some brochures and send her away and ask her to ring the counselling service to see if there are any cancellations in the next few days. But she was told she would it would be unlikely that she'd get an appointment until the next week, which is, it just seems 
absolutely ridiculous that someone with clear suicidal intent was sent away and she actually she went home that night and very nearly made the decision to take her life and if it weren't for the Edinburgh Crisis Centre who she called and who saved her life um, she perhaps wouldn't be here today and as you say that was a potentially life-threatening decision from the advice place two different advisors both spoke to this student who was clearly suicidal and neither of them reached out or sat with her while she called the advice the uh, crisis center I think it really does show it kind of summarizes everything that's wrong with student mental health provision there was no backup there was no oversight um, and as you say it could have been a very tragic story now, what would what would you put that down to? Would you say it was neglect as such, or would you just say it was maybe a lack of understanding, maybe a lack of training on the part of the people kind of at the front of the advice place? That's the thing. I don't think there was any harmful intent. The student herself has said that she understands that the staff at the advice place are working very hard. They just don't have the resources or the training. And staff I don't know the exact details of the training that staff at the advice place go through but they should have full psychological training if they're in a place where they're receiving students that could be in severe mental distress and they should know well I say they should know to spot the warning signs but it wasn't even as if there were warning signs here the student was clearly telling them that she had suicidal intent and she was ignored pretty much and it is a thing there where they were trying their best but clearly do not have the information or the resources to help some students going through things like that. Well, that's a subject that we'll come back to later um, to do with potentially perhaps better training needs being placed. That's something we will return, that's theme we'll return to later on. Now, Kerry, I just want to turn, to turn back to you um, because as part of your, your, your project and your work on your documentary for EU TV, um, well, it was, it was Kate Warwicker, a first year, who carried out the interviews um, for, your, for your documentary, and she interviewed Dr. Dominique Thompson. Um, who explains how students or the population aged between 18 and 25 have been the hardest hit by the pandemic in terms of mental health, if you just wanted to enlighten us a bit on that. Yeah, so it was really interesting. So uh, Dr. Dominique Thompson is a GP at the University of Bristol, and uh, she's done lots of TED Talks about uh, student mental health, lots of talks in general, written articles about it. So, you know, we, we, we got her on the documentary because we wanted to understand why in particular at, at university do people's mental health seem to really, you know, take a turn? And it's a, a well-known fact that, you know, one in five students has a current mental health diagnosis and one in 10 of those developed it whilst at university. Um, and she, you know, it was really interesting. Hearing she said that they have a 20% increase year on year of the number of students using university services. And that as much as you know, media attention and the government's focus has been on um, those who are, you know, who have autoimmune disorders or the the elderly who've been physically impacted by uh, by the pandemic. It's eighteen to twenty five year olds who have the, who've had the biggest emotional and mental health impact from from this. Um, and you know, she lists some reasons that this group of the population are more likely to be impacted by depression and isolation and anxiety and also you know loss of jobs loss of income and disruption of studies all these are factors that have played a role in this and she highlighted which I thought was a really interesting point it's that this group of of the population as you know we are young we're going to have to live with the impact of this for the longest um you know if you've developed a, a mental health you've struggled with your mental health during this time 
um, and you're 18, you know, it is something that, you know, will, will impact you for for a, a while. And, you know, looking back on, on everything that's happened. Um, so, yeah, it was really interesting speaking to her. Um, as someone who does work for a university, you know, she wasn't the first person to criticise the services that are available. But she did stress that, um, you know, they are under a lot of pressure. They are overwhelmed with the number of students coming to them. And that she did acknowledge that there's waiting lists for the NHS, there's waiting lists for university services and that students could fall fall in the gaps um, with with the systems currently in place. Yeah, well, the, the, the thing you say, all that Dominique Thompson said about um, the expansion of 20% every year of demands, demands for appointments suggested, I don't know, the, the university and institutions will be more familiar with having to expand year on year. Um, obviously this year we've had a greater wave perhaps than normal of greater greater demand for appointments but it's perhaps slightly surprising that the university didn't seem perhaps as flexible as it may may otherwise have been in incorporating all the other appointments. Yeah exactly and I think I think it goes back to um, when we spoke to Andy Shanks who's head of student well-being at Edinburgh and head of the mental health services um, he told us that they developed a strategy in 2017, which they're still following. And, it, you know, like you can't apply a strategy from 2017. I hate to use the expression unprecedented times, but it really they really are that what we're living in. And to apply a strategy that, that is, you know, so, so old, um, I think it's just a, a, a huge mistake. And I think that the the pandemic and everything that's happened and isolation and loneliness and disruption of studies and the stress that comes with that really needs to be incorporated into a mental health strategy and how they communicate with students and their outreach as well but if they're still following the strategy from 2017 how how is how are they doing that how is that possible well we'll just have a bit of a, a chat now we'll move the conversation on look at the current state of the university's mental health services and kind of look at how this strategy from 2017 has actually been coping um so Millie, um, there are several ways in which you can find yourself on the waiting list to see to see a counsellor for mental health services. It could be a self-referral. Um, I personally, I went via my personal tutor and he he got me on the waiting list. Or you can go personally um, to the advice place. Now, supposedly 94% of assessments of students are completed within two weeks of this initial uh, referral. And then you're you're supposed to get your first appointment within two weeks of that. But in reality, it doesn't seem to be that way. No, it doesn't and I do think the first problem that you get which um, we might touch on again later is the fact that you do often have to refer yourself there are very few people looking out for you struggling obviously we do have personal tutor meetings but you have to speak to your personal tutor you have to go to the advice place you have to refer yourself to counselling I think for a lot of young people struggling with mental health at university there is still this stigma our generation might have evolved quite a lot but I think there is still this stigma and this idea that at university, it's meant to be the best days of your life and you're not meant to be failing. So I think people do have the stigma. So I think that's the first problem. And then, as you said, the second problem is about how quickly students are seen. So according to USA, 94% of initial assessments are completed within two weeks. And after that, appointments are within two weeks after that. So that's one of those statistics that seems very impressive. But when you actually 
look into it. It means there are a fair, there are some students who end up waiting a month for any actual appointments, which if your mental health is fragile, whether that's because of long rooted psychological issues or if it's because of a blip in your mental health caused by coronavirus, a month is a long time to wait for support. Um, one of the students I spoke to uh, waited over three weeks before receiving counselling um, and at that stage, she was actually offered CBT counselling, which she'd specifically requested to not have as she'd tried that before and found that it personally wasn't right for her because there are lots of different options. Um, so it then took another two weeks for her to get the talking therapy that she felt would help her most. Um, and I think it is an issue. You sort of said they are working on more same day appointments, but I think it is one of those things where they they need to do this quickly because a month it may be quicker than the NHS waiting list, but that doesn't mean it's okay. It's a long time to wait if you're a student, isolated um, and struggling with your mental health. We spoke to uh, a girl as well who waited five months to speak to a counsellor. And then by the time the uni gave her an appointment, it was after her exams, she'd left Edinburgh and was told that the waiting list gets wiped over the summer. So she'd have to have another, um, she'd have to reapply in September and she'd get put to the, bottom of the waiting list again so it's like you say they have all these statistics and they say they're doing a lot but then when you actually speak to students who are trying to get help it seems quite far from reality and I'm so shocked about that they get it all sorted in two weeks because I, I don't think I've met anyone who's who's had it sorted that quickly that just seems like what? yeah mad Exactly. And I sent I actually sent a survey out to a small amount of students asking kind of what their waiting times were. And if you had a slightly more complicated problem, it some people, again, it took up to six months to receive help. And it's just too long. And I think one of the issues perhaps is the idea of the bureaucracy of it. It doesn't seem very human. Some of the stories I heard, and this links back to kind of Hannah's story I told the morning uh, uh, earlier, is that you have students who are clearly very much in distress and urgently need help but they just get stuck in the system of oh well we're going to take this amount of time to process this and then you're going to have a appointment to see what kind of help you need and I understand there must be a process when it comes to mental health matters but it needs to be more human and it needs to be better facilitated and just faster because as you said Karis although they claim that um 94% are assessed within two weeks. From the people I've spoken to, this is not how it works. So I, I am quite doubtful, actually, of those statistics. Yeah, I think having this having this system and having the institution, the mental health institution um, that the university has, it would be nice to see it, given that we have it in the first place, actually being as effective as it, as it claims to be. Um, I mean, just from my own personal experience, I'd say, if you can say lucky, I was lucky in the sense that I'd already seen seven or eight different counsellors across the last three and a half to four years. Um, to the point that, you know, when I was referred um, to the student mental health service, it would have been um, start, I think it was 2nd of November. Um, and then I had three weeks before my my assessment. But I, thankfully, I had these previous experiences. I kind of had coping techniques and things like that, that other people wouldn't necessarily have had. And then it was actually the 2nd of February um, so yeah, three months after I my initial referral, but I had my first appointment, um, and even then it was only a, a, a course of four appointments that we'll we'll come on to talk about. 
I also think, as you said, I mean, obviously it's still horrific that you had to wait that long, but you were someone who luckily had coping strategies. I also think what the university mm. seems to be forgetting is a lot of people, by the time they are desperate enough to reach out to the university, they are at the edge. They are at the worst they have ever been mentally. A lot of people, they don't have a lot of time to sit around and wait. They need to be seen pretty quickly. Um, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. Now, Kerry, just to just just to throw it back to you. Now, some of these student interviews that you did in your in your documentary for EU TV did pick up did pick up on something that that Millie mentioned just before that the onus is very much on the student to reach out for support a lot of the time, which is often easier said than done given their mental state. Um, but what I really want to say is that 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 can't be right, can it? I mean, Millie mentioned earlier about somebody who came to the advice place actually explicitly said they were having uh, suicidal thoughts and was basically turned away. Um, now, it shouldn't actually be possible for somebody to reach that stage, though, should it, without it having gone detected before. Like, there should be methods in place to kind of detect problems develop, developing over time. Yeah, definitely. And one of the students that we spoke to said that, you know, she was someone who, although she was struggling with her mental health, was still, you know, able to cope and was able to reach out and, and find where she had to go, find what form she had to fill out, whereas... You know, she said she did worry for, for those who were in such a bad place where that, that wasn't possible. And the last thing you want to do is search the website to find what form you have to send off and who you and, and justify in a box why you need help and write 500 words or however many it is. Um, so, uh, you know, she said she, she'd worry for people who, you know, wouldn't be able to, to do that. And the system just currently is not easy enough to to really facilitate that that reaching out um but I think you know there's there's a few people that can also play a role it's not just you know the the uni services I think personal tutors are essential when it comes to student mental health they're your kind of first point of call I know like you were saying that yours helped you to to get access to services but you know a lot a lot of students have it on their student record that they have a diagnosed mental health condition but when, whenever do, do personal tutors just reach out out the blue to see how they're doing or to send them an email? It's always, again, the student that has to email and say, I think I need some help. And it was interesting because Andy Shanks mentioned that they organized uh, staff training. Um, and uh, since COVID, they had a 2000 percent increase in, in uh, staff turning up because everything was online. Which makes me think how many personal tutors were turning up before to mental health training. If all of a sudden everything's online, they can do it at home yeah. and there's a 2000% increase. Um, so I think, yeah, I think personal tutors play a massive role in facilitating mental health, especially when it's on a student's record and it's, it's known uh, that they, they do struggle and they need that extra support. Um, but yeah, as always, the onus is on the student to to reach out, and that puts a lot of pressure on you. And when you're when you're in that place, the last thing you want to do is is write all about it on a very like blank document about how you're struggling. Um, so I, I think you know there needs to be checkups from from personal tutors how students are doing. Schools, you know, each school has a, a well-being officer, a well-being. Uh, woman and actually it's interesting because um once the documentary had gone out I had so I do French and German and I had an email from the woman who is head of well-being at uh, uh literatures languages and cultures at my school to make me aware of the services that were available to check that I was okay uh, which was lovely of her but it was the first time I'd ever seen her name in my inbox you know um 
And uh, I think those emails everyone should be made aware of. Here are the services on offer. Here's how you access them. Um, it shouldn't just be that you have to make a documentary that gets the media attention for the person at your school to reach out to you, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and actually doing German German and French myself in, in first year, I probably was, was on the receiving end of similar emails. And yeah, you, you're right, the outreach should be a lot better, particularly at this time. I do think in fairness, perhaps to the fact that we're online and we don't have the face-to-face contact all the time, it's maybe a little bit more difficult to sense signs when something isn't quite right. Um, and it's maybe difficult to detect things via, via email. Um, but I suppose these are all things that could be worked on, can be practiced, can be improved. Um, now, Millie, just to go back to you, you were highly critical of the fact that once you do get an appointment with, with, with the University Mental Health Service, by hook or by crook, when you eventually get an appointment, uh, the university offers a maximum of six sessions, and that's depending on how, how, how urgent, how serious they judge your case to be. So I was personally, in my case, offered a maximum of four, but the maximum any one person can be offered at a time is six. Um, now, you were very clear to emphasise that only in very few cases is that ever going to be anywhere near enough to even scratch the surface of an issue. Yeah, so I don't want to speak too strongly, but I think in the majority of mental health cases, four sessions is pretty much useless and also could actually be damaging. The student I spoke to who'd had previous mental health issues said she spent she was offered six sessions and she spent the first kind of three or four explaining her mental health history to the counsellor because every time you see a new counsellor you of course have to explain your history your family your background etc so by the time she got to the final session she kind of got all this traumatic information out and then she was given one session of being able to talk about it and was then essentially kicked out the door and it's again not the fault of the staff it's the fault of the kind of resources behind it. And I think I am very critical about it because I personally don't think four or six sessions is enough, whether or not you have long term mental health problems or it's if, or if students were just recently affected by coronavirus. I think four sessions is not a very long time to be able to firstly make a bond with a counsellor which is so important in actually getting kind of work done so many people I know have said that if you can't make some kind of bond with your counsellor or therapist it's essentially useless and four sessions is not very long for that and also as I said previously just talking about all the issues the combination of giving your background then talking about the issues then coming up with coping mechanisms in the long term that takes up a lot longer than six hours And this is something the uni actually has not really acknowledged. And as you said, six hours is the maximum. Many students are offered only four hours. And I think this is something we do have to be very critical about because a lot of people take the angle of the university is doing their best. It's a strange time. But I think if you're going to claim you're offering counselling and if you're going to claim you're supporting students, you have to offer longer term support or at least free alternatives for the students to go to afterwards. Because... Once you start the counselling process and it's then ended at, at the university, your only options really are the NHS, where waiting lists are ridiculously long because of our generation's mental health crisis, or private counselling, which is then incredibly elitist and unfair on students from lower income backgrounds who just cannot afford it. Um, so I do think the university really needs to look into a way of providing more longer term support. Yes, I mean, in my assessment appointment back back at the end of November there was it was sort of explained to me some there is some kind of logic apparently in having a maximum of six sessions so you've got you've got your CBT sessions you've got your talking sessions you've got yeah, I can't know what it is but the one that's quite heavily heavily based on diagrams and things like that 
and it's quite visual. Mm. Um, and then there's also this, what the university provides, which is some kind of express service, I suppose. Um, and I don't really see kind of the, 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 the positives of that really. Like all the other ones kind of have perks and they focus on different, mm. if you're a visual person or someone who benefits from talking. I just don't see how six sessions of anything can be of, uh, of any great use. Yeah, it, it's almost kind of what's the point if I know that seems very critical, but it is if you're going to offer support, offer support that will help the student in the long term, not that will yeah. kind of make them relive traumatic events and then have to finish or that will kind of start helping them, but then leave them exactly where they were. And I just think it needs to be recognized because, as you said, when it's all explained to you and you think of all the different counseling and therapy options, the express course is one that would not be recommended by many people. Morgan, one of the students that we spoke to in the, the documentary, um, she said that after she'd finished her sessions, they kind of just go, here's the Samaritan's leaflet and some other brochures to flick through. And she didn't know what to do. She was really stuck for a solution and couldn't afford private counselling and ended up finding a charity um, down in Leith who gave discounted therapy sessions. You still had to pay, but it was a significantly decreased amount than um, private therapy. Um, and But yeah, she was very strong in the opinion that students shouldn't, if the uni's offering that support in the first place, should students shouldn't be having to, to look elsewhere and, and pay money elsewhere when that service is allegedly on offer and there for them to access yeah now that's actually something you said in there that, that reminded me of, of an experience i had with the but not just with the university service but with, with other ones where when you join a counseling service or try to try to get to counsel whether it's with the nhs or at your school or at university or whatever and one of the first things to do is to give you a list of, of things so in the last two weeks have you felt this have you felt that have you thought this um and you give a number from from zero to five um just to kind of gauge where you're at in, in that moment so back in November, the university, I did one of these and there was quite a few zeros, ones and twos on it. Um, and then come the end when I had my sessions and did it, they asked me to do it again. And I put, the, you know, there were a lot more threes and fours, a lot more, lot more positive results. Um, but something my, my counsellor did say is you don't have to do this, 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 this form at the end. It doesn't really matter what you put on it. And I'm thinking, it, well, it doesn't matter what I put on it. Well, what's the point in doing it then? If I give it you back and it's got the same results on it that I gave you before I had any of these counselling sessions, then... Does that not tell you something? There must be, it, it's almost if like you have your four sessions, then you give your feedback and it's not, it's just, it's not, it's not analysed. Nobody learns anything. It just, again, seems like there are so many opportunities to, for students to fall through the cracks. I just think at every stage of the process, vulnerable students um, can be left to fend for themselves. And I think any student who's had to access counselling through the university should be checked back in on on a regular basis. The university yeah. supports services should be checking in on them every month or so for quite a long time after they've had the counselling and see if they need more because I think as we've kind of covered it's not enough and as you've said it seems as if they weren't even taking the feedback you gave into account which just again seems quite ridiculous. Now Keris for your for your documentary just to move the, the conversation on a little bit further um, Kate Warwick the first student who carried out the interviews in the documentary interviewed uh, Vice Principal Colm Harmon. Um, now, I just wondered if you could kind of summarise or you know give some kind of explanation of what he had to say about the university's mental health services. 
Yeah, so his interview was interesting um, because his kind of line of thought from the beginning, um, and he says that the university is is not a mental health provider. That was kind of his line from the very beginning. Um, and that, you know, they had always, I think it's, he said that they work very closely with the NHS, but he was kind of very keen that the uni shouldn't be seen as a, a, a fully functioning mental health provider that can and it, which was just baffling to me because they offer services which in my view makes them a mental health provider to some extent because there are counsellors that work for the uni there is a whole system in place um so I thought that was a, a very kind of damaging way of looking at it in a sense um that you know we were not a mental health provider and we shouldn't be seen as one um but there are services that they offer um But yeah, another thing which he said was that they'd always been planning on moving more resources online to make things more accessible, um, but COVID has forced them to do it, Um, which again, I thought was a bit questionable because, you know, if accessibility is something that they were looking at doing, um, and if there were students who weren't able to access resources for whatever reason, um, why does it have to be that there's a global pandemic that forces them to move resources online, to move classes online, to be able to offer counselling sessions online if a student can't come into to uni? That was one of the things Morgan said, you know, she was so depressed she couldn't get out of bed. So why why did the uni think that she'd be able to come in and, and have a counselling session? Um, so, yeah, there were just a few things that were, were a bit kind of questionable. Um, and yeah and he was you know that it's great we have the chaplaincy and the disability services and all these places where students can go but in my opinion it shouldn't have to be that a student is is not getting the help that they need that they have to go to the disability services that they have to you know if like we've always like we've said if their services on offer why is it that students are having to go to so many different places in order to talk to someone or to get some kind of relief and yeah, he was just so keen to show that all these things are working so well together. And it's it's great that they're there and it's great that students feel comfortable in going to different places. But to, to feel that your, your mental health is that bad, you have to go to the, the disability services to get some sort of help or to the chaplaincy when there are counsellors and there are, uh, you know, sessions on offer. I was just a bit kind of taken aback by his approach to some of the questions that we asked and to some of the systems in place. Yeah, I mean, it's... We should at this point perhaps give give some credit to the to the chaplaincy and disability services. I mean, the the disability services. There was one person who I believe had uh, fifteen hours of one to one sessions, um, and the chaplaincy also. Um, I've not used it personally, but I know other people who have, and it's perhaps it's kind of a step below um, full on mental because it's it's not with a council. It was with one of one of the one of the university chaplains, um, so it's perhaps not quite as intense or serious. Um, but but again, the fact that people who are in a much more serious situation are turning to that as an alternative, I'm not sure it can it can quite do the same job. Um, now, Millie, I know you're yeah, far I- more sceptical about students having to look, look, look elsewhere for support, obviously, for example, having to pay for private sessions even. I mean, I think I do want to say credit where credit is due, as you said. I think the disability um, services and the chaplaincy are good services. My one concern with the chaplaincy is although it does try to appear not overly religious. I think it could be intimidating for certain students, especially, for example, queer students who've come from a religious background that didn't accept them. They will not then want to get mental health assistance from somewhere that is originally designed with religion in mind, even if that's not what the later process is. 
Um, but no, I, I'm skeptical about the fact that students should have to access support from outside. And I do kind of completely disagree with what um, Cole Harmon said. I just, I think it's a very clever way of trying to present the university as not somewhere that should be present, providing mental health support because it ignores the fact that everybody knows university is more than academic experience and that is widely acknowledged your life at university is not just about the academics and I think that is a huge social thing in Britain and in other places but to argue the university is a community and just like a school is a community or a workplace is a community and schools and workplaces have responsibility for their employees or their students mental health so too does the university and I think it's it's an easy way to get around it to argue that the university is not a place that provides mental health support, but as a place where young people spend kind of formative years of their lives maturing, it should be, and there should just be a greater focus on the overall student experience rather than just the academic side. And I don't think we should negate the fact that universities do have a responsibility um, to their students. Yeah, I think as well, again, the feedback that we received was the disability service in particular have been amazing at helping students and I think it's like you're saying it's not just purely about you know getting the mental health support yes that's essential but the disability service for example they offer sessions where you can go and do your uni work and get help with with tasks they offer so many other aspects of uni life where you can get help with and and advice with um and I think that offers more of a full package than just four sessions and and that's it. Yes. So now I agree with all of that that you've just said, Karis. And now if we just further that, I just want to come back to you um, talking about how the university and mental health services have assisted students uh, during the pandemic. Um, Specifically, one of the students that you were speaking to in your documentary was rather cynical of the university's approach to checking up on students in isolation, which has obviously become a lot more prevalent in recent months. Yeah, um, so I think when it comes to communication in general, um, even before the pandemic, the uni has never really been on top of things. Like Morgan, for example, she took a six-month leave of absence because of her mental health and wasn't contacted once by the mental health services or her school or her personal tutor during those six months, um, which is shocking to me. Um but yeah, so basically uh, with Kate being on board, she's a first year um, and she was telling us a lot about the experiences that she's had. Um, and it was really interesting because uh, she was saying that um, if you tested positive for COVID and you were in isolation, you were contacted by the uni to say you'd be getting a phone call where they would check on you to see if you were OK. Um, and she had one phone call and they were told you'll get another one at the end of your your two week isolation. And she she said if you in anyone that she's spoken to any other first years no one else seemed to have this second phone call um and therefore you have a phone call at the beginning and then two weeks of being locked in in your room or your own space and there's no follow-up there's no checking in on you to see how you're doing and she found that really shocking and you know if, if people are struggling with their mental health already to be promised a second chance of a checkup and a second chance of talking to someone about how you've been doing for the past two weeks, for that to fall through, I think speaks volumes about the uni's approach to, to mental health. And we did raise this to Andy Shanks and he was very quick to shift the the blame onto the accommodation services. They were the ones that were organising these calls, therefore he had nothing to do with it. But um, 
again, it's just another example of poor outreach from the union and promising things that they just don't deliver on that have consequences. Yeah, I do wonder if it is something that varies from accommodation to accommodation even. Um, mm. I mean, I know somebody who was a first year in Sheens this year um, and she was sent packages of pasta, pasta sauce, cereal, that kind of thing, so that she didn't have to go out to the shops. But that was nothing specific to do with the fact that she tested positive. I don't think she she ever tested positive during this year. That was just kind of something that they gave to every student, um, which you know, is, is, a, is a good gesture, but I don't think there was no kind of tailored extra support and outreach to people who actually had tested positive and actually physically weren't allowed to go anywhere. Um, so just kind of further to that, I suppose, how would you say the university could actually go about improving its outreach to students stuck in isolation? Um, I think, as I've mentioned previously, personal tutors are really key to that, especially if you've had the same one for a few years or a few months. Um, it shouldn't just be the uh, the you know focus of one uni department. I think there are several people who could be playing a role in communicating better with students. And... Um, especially if it's on a student's record that they struggle with their mental health. If they tell the uni that they've tested positive and will be isolating for two weeks, I think then that's an immediate, uh, you know, an immediate sign that they need to be check, checked up on and they need to be, you know, make sure that they know that there are people that they can talk to and that they can communicate with. Um, but I, I mean, Andy Shanks did admit that they are looking into different ways to communicate with students because they do know that not everyone checks their emails or things can go missing. Um, but I think there needs to be a real active push on their end to communicate with students on on every kind of social media, emails, you know, even on campus, if there's posters up, you know, with with how how you can get in touch with someone like little things like that. There is there's so much more they can be doing rather than having to wade your way through to find some cold form on a website somewhere. Yeah. And something else you, you spoke about with with Morgan, who you spoke to for your documentary and her not being contacted for six months on her leave of absence that she took because of mental health. There should definitely be something there, shouldn't there, to try and some kind of contact to try and see what can be done to maybe encourage us to come back into academia rather than taking so much time out yeah exactly and once again when we raised that to Andy Shanks we said we've spoken to a student who wasn't contacted for an entire six months on a leave of absence he said that that was the school's responsibility so I think there's a clear there's I think there's a lack of communication between the uni the uni groups in in all honesty um it should you could it's all well and good saying oh well that's the school's responsibility but does the school know that they should be doing that and if they don't, then that's an issue because you've got a student that isn't getting contacted by anyone because no one's sure who should be contacting them in the first place. So I think they need to redevelop really their communication strategy within uni departments um, as well. I think that's quite a crucial thing because clearly, again, students are falling through the cracks because no one knows who should be the one responsible. Now we've so far in this in this podcast that we've recorded, we've spent a lot of time kind of putting questions to the university in terms of why do they operate in the way they do why do they not do this why do they not do that and I think maybe if we take this opportunity now just over the next few minutes maybe look at some solutions and discuss some some room for improvement now Chris you've spoken about your interview with Andy Shanks which we'll, we'll speak about a little more in just a second but I just want to bring Millie back in who in researching her article for the student you spoke to Dr Ruth Caleb who chaired the mental well-being in higher education working group um, and she had a number of suggestions and ideas about how to improve universities' responsiveness to student mental health issues. 
Um, and I just wondered if you wanted to, to, to speak a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. And I think one of the first things to stress, because the usual kind of response from kind of universities and bodies is, but we don't have the resources for that. And Dr. Caleb really wanted to stress that although some of it was about resources, a lot of it was not necessarily about money. It was about things that weren't that expensive. So her first suggestion was for university to have a service with 24-hour availability or at least have very close links with it. So this goes back to Hannah's story. If there were closer links between the advice place and the Edinburgh Crisis Centre, perhaps um, an advice place advisor could have sat with Hannah while she called them and got her the help she needed, even if it wasn't from them, them explicitly. Um, kind of a second suggestion from Dr. Caleb, which she felt was really important, was training for all staff and students on mental health and comprehensive training. And I think this is really interesting, personally, because I think training for all members of the university community is essential because I think students need perhaps training as well. Because I think it is so much easier to get people the help they need if their flatmate or their lecturer or their friend from a society notices the warning signs. But I also think you mentioned earlier kind of how um, since going online, mental health training attendance has increased rapidly. I think it should be compulsory. It shouldn't be something where um, kind of staff can get away from going without. And I think, I know it's more difficult online, but I think all staff should have, and Dr. Caleb said, all staff should have comprehensive mental health training, which she said is not incredibly expensive. Um, She also talked a lot about something that's quite often ignored, I think, which is academic pressures. And I think it can be ignored, but the culture of perfectionism at university, especially at a Russell Group university like Edinburgh, I think can be very triggering, especially as I said, in a generation that's already experiencing a mental health crisis, pile COVID on top of that. And she was very clear, Dr. Caleb, that the university needs to have more um, relaxed standards for academia, especially during COVID. And I would say perhaps reintroduce a no detriment policy, which the university has refused to do. Um, but she, another one of her um, suggestions, which is backed up by several campaign groups at the university is to have a bigger awareness of structural inequality. So something we haven't talked about yet really is how there are obviously some groups who are more vulnerable to mental health problems while at university, such as um, BME students who are BAME students in a very white university or LGBTQ plus students, um, students from a lower income background in a very privileged university. Um, and USA has recently hired two BAME counsellors, um, but I think that's something that needs to be kept up. But I mean, overall, Dr. Caleb's suggestions, there were many of them, but they all essentially add up to the university listening to students, being em- empathetic towards students and just making sure it all comes back to this kind of constant checking in and not assuming that students are all right. In fact, assuming the opposite, assuming they're not all right and checking in to m- see what can be done. And I think that is where the university needs to change its mindset and not have mental health as kind of a side note where if you need it, you can go to our separate agencies, but to have it incorporated into the entire experience. Yeah, now um, this is just kind of on the subject of lightening the burden on students and a bit of empathy towards them. I think it's a, a fair point to raise that. And if either of you wants to come back on this, because I think you've both, you've both written about this or spoken about this, um, kind of the idea back when we had the second wave back in around September and it was students seemed a very easy target to say oh it's because of all the students going back to university not following lockdown which to an extent up for debate how true that is but it seemed 
incredibly unfair to you know place all the blame on students. Um, so I just think the student community as a whole was burdened with a whole lot more pressure, unnecessary, unfair pressure um, that certainly didn't help. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of those opinions came from a real lack of understanding. It's very easy to say, oh, students, they're, they're the ones spreading it, you know, keep them in their accommodation. But when you look at the size of some of those accommodation rooms, or you look at cases like Manchester, for example, who fence, physically fenced student in, students into their accommodation and mm. didn't give them any warning that this was happening. You know, it's been a really rough time for students. And I feel like in the media, we were really vilified um, for things that were really out of our control. Um, and, and you know, looking at Edinburgh as well with, with Pollock, for example, and, you know, the food that they were being served it was it was a really tough time and I think it's so easy to point the finger at young people and for example a group that uh, often gets ignored in media coverage as well as international students and Channel 4 did a really interesting report about international students in London and a lot of them are living in houses with like eight nine ten plus people um they can't focus on their uni lectures and there's now food banks in London dedicated specifically for international students which when you think of how rich a lot of British universities are and that they're not doing anything to to help this situation I think it, it's just shocking really. Now Millie you talked about um, the, the employment of some BME staff um, who perhaps more more understanding of specific issues that were felt by specific portions of the student population um, now, when you contacted you, sir, they told you that staff were working increased hours to be able to accommodate more people fitting more interviews and that they had actually co- appointed um, five more full-time staff. And I believe also they're looking for kind of a third-party supplier to provide more um, counsellors for when there is an extra and especially high demand. Uh, now, these are, in fairness, these are very positive steps, aren't they? Yeah. As you say, in fairness, I'm not criticising constantly. I think these are good steps. But the way I see it, these are steps, if you look at, as I said, our generational mental health crisis, these are steps that should have been taken two years ago before coronavirus, because even before coronavirus, clearly the student support services were kind of struggling under the weight of a lot of students that needed their support. And the fact is, I think it has just been brought in a little bit too late. Um, As I said, I am very happy that's happening. I think the um, appointment of BAME staff to student support is a really big, really big plus, and that'll be a great support to many minority students. But I think it is the university just needs to focus on student well-being. I mean, this is a stat that I found the other day, but in the most recent national student survey, Edinburgh University became 136 out of 154 in student satisfaction, which is crushingly low out of British institutions which just shows that it's not a priority. As Kara said, British universities are rich. Edinburgh University has a lot of money in investments, wherever it is. And I think, as you say, I think it is great steps. I think you've got to give credit where credit is due and clearly effort is being put in. But I just don't think it's what they're focusing on at the moment, even though it's clearly one of the main problems that they are facing at the moment. I think it's just got to be the centre of the university's focus has got to be student satisfaction and student well-being for the time. Along that subject, Kerry, just to return to you um, and your interview with Andy Shanks, who is kind of at the peak of all this within the University of Edinburgh. Uh, now, he spoke about the University Scotland framework 
and the University of Edinburgh currently is trying to fulfil and does to a certain extent already fulfil. Um, and also a review process they're carrying out, which is involving the sports unions, the student associations, trying to involve and hear from students. Um, now, these are these are also, like Millie's just spoken about, these are some positive steps, aren't they, as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's great for them to incorporate the you know the sports union and USA and and other organizations that are have a, a huge you know student uh, impact and students are play a big role in these organizations and i think it's great that Edinburgh's working with other scottish universities to make sure that there is a kind of uniform approach and that it's tested and that it works and that student feedback shows that they're they're more happy with the services on offer so I think, you know, I think it's important to say it's not that you, Edinburgh is, is really stuck in their ways and that they're keeping on with this old strategy and system. Like, I think they are very open to feedback. And because there are all these communication issues, sometimes it's maybe not clear to them that students are dissatisfied. But I think we hoped with the with the documentary, and I suppose maybe really it was the same with your article, that you know we didn't want it to be seen as an attack on the uni. We want it to be seen as feedback. Um, and I think in in saying that they're working with the sports union and and other associations at the uni, I think it's you know they do take on board that students are you know wanting to share their experiences, and I think if they can work with more groups and involve more students, and that's a really positive step forward. So I suppose what I really want to ask you from from what you heard in your interview. Um, is it just a case of needing to fine-tune the current system that we have or is more wholesale change needed just like tear it up and, and start again? Um, I think that's a hard a hard question um, because you know I, I'm not a professional in, in mental health you know services and, and uh, provision but I do think you know there are, I, I don't think it requires the whole system being teared down and, and completely redone but I think there are a lot of things that need correcting for example uh, the number of sessions provided I don't think four sessions and then that's you done is a very good approach personally um, and communication with students really needs to improve and just making the whole very bureaucratic system a easier to follow and be more human I think is is very important um, and waiting times as well is a big thing. So whether that means hiring more counsellors, making sure there are more hours available in a week to speak to people and then checking up on them after. If that means hiring more staff, then I definitely think that's something that the uni should look into. I don't know, Millie, what do you think? Do you think it should be redone or do you think it's fine tuning needed? I think it is a balance. And I want to say, as you said, my article was very critical, but it wasn't meant to kind of just attack the uni at every angle. It's meant to be kind of constructive criticism because as a lot of the people I spoke to said that the staff who they spoke to for mental health were amazing and the staff were trying their hardest and doing their best in what was a limited system. And that's where I think that I think the existing system is good, but it's too niche. And I think it's, again, it needs to be integrated into the entire university system. Mental health shouldn't be a separate thing that we only talk about when your mental health has deteriorated massively. It should be constant, a constant presence. And I think, as you said, it's the same thing of having more appointments. I think they do need to hire more staff in a time like this. Um, and I think having more availability and, as I said, training all staff and students so that mental health is something that is on on everyone's minds because it is something that we, we are probably 
most of us are going to be affected by mental health issues at some point in our life, whether it's ours or our families or our friends. And I think the university, I think it does need a shake of a system just to make it more widely integrated. I think it just needs to listen to students. Now, Millie, you did actually conclude your article by suggesting a commission on student well-being, um, which does sound like a, a wonderful suggestion. Um, I just wondered if you'd like to expand on that and explain kind of how you maybe envisage that functioning. Yeah, I just think um, it's again the thing that I think university staff are trying their hardest, but the system needs to change slightly. And I think it's something that does need a commission because it clearly is a crisis. And I think I, the way I imagine it would be a commission with a mix of kind of mental health professionals, lecturers, higher education professionals, and also students. I think what's important to remember is our generation is one of the most we are the best educated on mental health than any other generation before us and I think this is what's important is a lot of students know what they need for their mental health support they're not they don't need to be sat down and asked about what they need they know about mental health they know about depression and anxiety and PTSD and they know that they need support and I think the university just needs to talk to students more and so yeah this commission would be a mix of students and professionals and just kind of coming up with a greater plan because as we've both said the university is clearly trying but it's not quite working and I think you need a commission on something like this it's not something um as Kara said if they are still using this 2017 plan it's something that needs a big revamp and I think the university should invest in the resources to have a look at this and work out what can be done because it's clearly very important. Okay, so I think that brings us to the end of our dis- our discussion. Then that so that sounds like a, a a very suitable place to finish. Um, so that brings us to the end of the first ever episode, in fact, of Paper Telly Sound, um, and our collaboration project between Fresh Air, the student, and EU TV. Um, so thank you all for listening. Um, we all learned a great deal fr- from this research project we've done, and we hope it can be used both to to students listening and to people at the university, and um, to kind of gauge gauge how students feel about the the mental health services provided. Um, So I'm Peter Johnson. I'm from Fresh Air Radio. I'm Keris. I'm from EU TV. And I'm Millie. I'm from The Student. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, We'll leave you now with a clip from uh, Dr Dominique Thompson's interview uh, that was recorded for the EU TV documentary, where she provides three steps of how to stay calm and look after yourselves during, during lockdown, which we hope will be of use to all of you listening. Three things about um, staying well. Uh, so, so number one would be making lots of social connections. So making friends, meeting people. They don't just have to be friends, though, um, that you keep forever. I'm talking about, you know, connecting with people through doing things like volunteering, which is a really lovely thing to do because you feel good because you're doing something for people and they feel good because you've done something nice for them and you meet like-minded people. So, you know, meet as many people as you can to build what I call a sort of spider's web of connections because that will help you to feel more confident and feel happier generally and you know carry on through life doing that so making connections is really important I think it's important to um, have each day some sense of uh, purpose so it doesn't have to be a massive thing it might be something like I'm going to bake a cake today it might be I'm going to do some reading for my next essay but not all of it just prepare it might be I'm going to phone granny 
you know, whatever it is, have something so that each day, because humans, we need to feel that we've achieved stuff, you know, and whether you're a list person like me or just someone who just at the end of the day likes to feel like, you know what? Yeah, I'm pretty happy with what what I did there. Go for a walk, you know, whatever it is sort of tick things off in your mind so you feel good about yourself. So having a little sense of purpose for every day is really important. Um, so I think that's really important. And then the other thing I think that's that's just great for us generally for building confidence and is a, is a good one for life is to try new things, not be afraid, whether it's meeting new people, might be a bit scary or giving a talk. When people offer you opportunities, um, and I talk as someone who was offered to go paddle boarding and will never be doing that again, but I said, yes, I gave it a go. And it's definitely not made for me, but you know, the point is you feel pretty chuffed with yourself when you do something that's a bit outside your comfort zone and you think, yeah, I can do, I could, well, okay, I'm not doing that again, but I can do stuff, you know? So I think that's what's important to, to, to sort of just keep, because obviously lots of people will tell you to, you know, eat healthily and get lots of sleep. Those things are vital. But I'm talking about just the other stuff that helps us feel good.